You recall as we go back uh, to where I left off with you anyway, uh, several weeks ago, um, we were looking at a uh, summary of the key points that have stood out in Luke's gospel in the first eight chapters. And it's always good every once in a while to kind of come to a full pause and to say, what have we learned so far? What has stood out to us? And we identified that one of those things that Luke has emphasized is the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? And it's, it's important for us as followers of Christ to know who we're following. Um, we need to have a clear understanding in our own mind of who he is uh, so that we can know what to expect and also so that we can explain to others uh, in whom we have our hope and why it uh, is good for forgiveness of sin and uh, for eternal life. And so this morning I want to kind of take a pause and look at the question, who is Jesus? And Paul gives us uh, an interesting answer to that question in Philippians chapter 2. His answer actually begins in verse 6. But I'm going to read the first part of the chapter so that we can get the context. So Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You know what Paul's really saying here? He's taking a lot of words to say, I founded your church. I've been invested in your church. I love you people. And if you really love me, there's one thing you can do to just absolutely bless my socks off. <laughs> there's one thing you can do to give me a lot of joy. And this is what it is. And he talks about being of the same mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then he says, almost like the opposite, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves. Ah, here's where the rubber meets the road. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, you are to be followers and imitators of Christ in this respect, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven and on the earth, and under the earth, 
and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now Paul, in illustrating a a characteristic of our lives as followers of Christ, tells us something about Jesus. And this passage is one of the great classic passages of Scripture on the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. That for those of you that are theologically inclined or kind of uh, Bible students that like the, the big words, um, this is the kenosis passage. And the kenosis is that Greek word which means to empty. And a lot of the question surrounds this passage. There's a lot of debate. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Well, I'm going to put an end to the debate this morning and explain it and give you the final answer, okay? <laughs> I'm going to give you the authoritative answer, the Paul Martin answer on what it means that Jesus emptied himself. But in doing that, uh, also Paul says that Jesus existed in the form of God. Now that doesn't mean he was a model, you know, like a caricature. It means that he existed in the same image if you want to say shape, in the same exact likeness as God. Now, who can do that other than God himself? No one can exist exactly like God except God. And if there's any doubt about that, he goes on to say, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, He was fully equal with God, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not regard that equality, that identical uh, personhood, that equal nature, as something he had to hold on to. But he was able to empty himself and come to this earth and take the form of a bondservant, the form of a man, and be made in the likeness of uh, human beings, and uh, become obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Many people are of the impression that Jesus did not exist before he was born of Mary. I've heard that from a number of sources. And I even had someone ask me a few months ago, Uh, Isn't it true that Jesus did not exist before he was incarnate through the Virgin Mary? And I thought about the way they were asking the question for a moment, and I thought, well, there's there's a certain amount of truth to that. Because uh, the, the angel said, and when he is born, you will call his name Jesus, um, because he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus of Nazareth is the the name that he took on in his incarnation. But he did not begin in Mary's womb. He existed eternally in the form of God, always with God from the beginning. John in his gospel makes that quite clear when he says in beginning was the word and the word was with God. And God was the Word. 
The interesting thing about that verse, uh, if uh, you don't recall from our previous studies, there's no definite article with beginning. John did not write in the beginning. He wrote in beginning. Uh, One of my professors said, pick a beginning, any beginning, any beginning you want to pick, go there. Jesus was already there. He had no beginning himself. In beginning, he was. And the verb that is used three times means continuously existing in the past. He was always being in beginning and throughout all of creation. In fact, it says everything was made through him and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life and the life is the light of men. Now, let me ask you a quick quiz. What was made through him? Everything. What does that leave out? Nothing. Jehovah's Witness come to your door and they would like to tell you that Jesus is created. If he was created, is he a thing? Is he part of the everything? How could he make everything if he is one of the things that was made? The Bible's very plain. He made everything, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. In other words, He Himself is not made. He is eternally existing as God the Son. And so we can have confidence that when we're speaking about our Lord Jesus Christ, we're speaking about one who has existed from beginning without end to the end without end. He is the Eternal One as much as God the Father and as much as God the Holy Spirit. When He consented, as it were, to the divine plan of redemption and allowed Himself to be incarnated through the womb of Mary, the Scripture says the Holy Spirit fashioned a body for Him and planted that body in the womb of Mary. I base that on, a, on a Matthew chapter 1, uh, where um, Matthew, uh, the angel, explains to Joseph, that which is in you, or actually explains it to Mary, that which is in you is out of the Holy Spirit. He is the second man and the last Adam. And that which was planted in Mary's womb was created by the Holy Spirit, uh, an, an embryo of humanity that Jesus Christ would inhabit. And in that moment, that moment that he was placed in the womb of Mary, Jesus Christ came to this earth. Well, the reality is no one saw him for another nine months. But he came in the incarnation when he was planted in the womb of Mary. Luke makes it very clear that Mary was a virgin. She had not had sexual intercourse with any human being. And when the angel told Joseph to not be afraid to take Mary as his wife, when all of this was unfolding, the scripture says very plainly, in terms that anybody can understand, And he took her and kept her a virgin until after Jesus was born. After that point, unlike the Roman Catholic teaching, 
that Mary went on to maintain her virginity and somewhat deity uh, as they basically ascribed to her in worship. The fact is that she and Joseph entered into a normal marital relationship and they had children. And Jesus grew up in a household with brothers and sisters. But he himself was incarnated in the womb of Mary apart from human work. The Holy Spirit placed him there and he was taking on human flesh. His deity is attested throughout all of Scripture. Matthew attests to it when it says, And you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Uh, Mark attests to it in the recognition of his deity. You can find that in chapter 8. John is very clear about it, both in the Gospel and in the Revelation you read that description of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1, and you're, you can have no room left in your mind not to imagine that He is God Almighty. This Jesus whom we worship and love and serve and adore is nothing less than God. He is so much God that it's as if He were not man at all. And he has all of the attributes of deity. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the eternal Son of God, fully divine. He is without beginning, without end, the creator, sustainer of things seen and unseen. He is the judge of all people. Did you know that one day the scripture says, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ? I'm very glad to tell you that we will not be held accountable for our sin at that judgment because that has already been covered by the blood of the Lamb on the cross of Calvary. But we will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ to give an accounting of our lives and how much of our life had eternal significance because we were yielded to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. That's going to be a sad day for some people when they find out that they just kind of barely sneak through. And for others it's going to be a grand and glorious opportunity to see that their lives in devotion to Jesus Christ have yielded uh, baskets full of eternal fruit. And so every believer will come before the judgment seat of Christ. But also, he will be at the great white throne and he will be the standard against which all of humanity is judged. And the scripture says that every human being, all the dead of all the ages, will be resurrected and stand before that judgment, and He will be the judge of all people. And the question in that day, because they have not taken Him as their Lord and Savior, will be to evaluate how their lives have measured up to His perfect standard. We need not go any further in our imagination as to how terribly Everyone will fall short. It is so important. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time to make it right with God now so that you won't have to face that judgment and that you will be safe already covered by His blood. He is our Savior, our Redeemer, our elder brother and friend, and our Lord God 
Almighty. Now you know everything that I've just shared with you is something that most evangelicals already believe. They will give a hearty amen to the deity of Jesus Christ. It's something that we all kind of accept. We understand that he is God, come in human flesh. Where we get hung up is when we start talking about his humanity. Because it's in the discussion of Jesus' humanity that we get all muddled and confused. And we don't know when he's acting like God and when he's acting like man. And we don't know how to separate the two. And I want to make that very simple for you this morning. According to Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, when he left his eternal throne in heaven to come to this earth, the scripture says, he laid aside his attributes of deity. Now what does that mean? Many of you have heard me share this uh, example or this analogy before, but I think it's a useful one. So I bring it to you again. If you have valuables expensive jewelry that may be an heirloom inheritance or something. Perhaps you have a stack of cash for a rainy day emergency. Um, perhaps you have the title or the deed to your house and other important papers and your will and those kinds of documents. And you want them to be kept safe. You may go to a local bank and rent a safe deposit box and go into the vault and take that drawer out uh, and place your valuables in that safe deposit box. And you push it back in and you lock it and you walk out of there. Now, do you cease to own those items? Do they stop being yours in any sense of the word? They don't. They're yours. But can you get them anytime you want? Um, no, you can't. <laughs> If the bank's closed, you can't get them. If there's no attendant on duty at the vault, you can't get them. You have to have a bank official identify you and have you sign the registry and go with you because they have a key also, and you have to put both of your keys in to get your uh, safe deposit drawer out. And Jesus, when he laid aside his attributes of deity, he put them in temporary storage with the Father and locked them away as he came to this earth. He did not take them back until the resurrection. So the simple answer to the question is, when was Jesus acting like God and when was he acting like man upon this earth? He was always acting as a man. You say, oh, wait a minute. I have a problem with that. He knew stuff that other people didn't know. He knew that the woman at the well had had five husbands and was living with someone she wasn't married to. Uh, he knew uh, other things about other people. He performed miracles. He raised the dead. Uh, he did all kinds of amazing things. He fed 5,000 people. Who's ever done anything like that? And the answer is, Every one of the disciples and prophets in the Old Testament performs similar and like miracles. Jesus is not the only one in Scripture who raised the dead. He may be the only one that is recorded as feeding 5,000, but the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, when he went to the widow's home and she was out of oil, he prayed for her and her little bottle of oil did not run out. 
for several years. She kept pouring, kept pouring, kept pouring, kept pouring. I, I, you know, I have to wonder if one day she didn't say, okay, I just got to check this out. She gets out something about five gallons worth and she's pouring to see, is this bottle going to empty? And it never does. She has all kind of oil. It sustains her throughout the famine and throughout the drought. Because of the anointing of the prophet and God enabling him to perform this miracle for her. Everything that Jesus did in his body while on this earth, his disciples have done. And he promised that. He says, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to leave you the same Holy Spirit. And as he comes into your life, he will empower you to do the same things that I have done by the same authority and by the same power. So you cannot look at the miracles of Jesus and claim that those are when he's acting like God. Because the other disciples also did similar things. Jesus Christ upon this earth grew tired and hungry and thirsty. He needed food and drink, companionship and friends. You know, God designed us in His own image as social beings. Jesus Himself was not a lone ranger. He desired the friendship and fellowship of others. To me, one of the saddest and most poignant moments of Scripture. You remember when He fed the 5,000, then He went across the lake, and the the people are around there, they're wanting to follow Him all over. In fact, they would like to get a free meal every day. You know, they see the potential in this. (laughs) We could go the rest of our lives and never work, and He could just feed us. And so Jesus begins to talk to the multitude, and He says, look, it's, it's not about coming and getting free food. It's about following me. And you keep eating this food, it's going to keep going through you, you're going to get tired, one day you're going to die. It's not food you need, it's me that you need. And then he gets in their face in a way that he knows will get their attention. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any life in yourselves. You're going to die. You need me. You need to come to me. That's what you need to do. They had no idea what he was really talking about. Of course he wasn't talking about cannibalism. He was talking about drawing life from his source and coming to him for life eternal. But they got that all mixed up and they all left. They said, we don't want anything to do with you. You're crazy. And Jesus turned to his disciples who were still standing around him and he said, and I think with sadness, He said, are you guys leaving also? I think there was a loneliness expressed there. I think if we could have seen Jesus in that moment, there was was a sadness in him that people had walked away. And Peter, bless his heart, (laughs) responded with those famous words, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life eternal. You are the source. We'll stay. And I think that warmed his heart that his disciples, though they didn't fully understand, were willing to continue to follow. Jesus could be tempted, and he felt the pressure of temptation. 
Don't think that Jesus' temptation was some kind of play act recorded in Scripture. When he got to the end of 40 days of fasting in the wilderness and the Scripture says he became hungry, friends, he was hungry. He was really hungry. And the devil comes to him and says, you can take these stones. You've got all kind of power. You can turn these stones into bread. I think I told you when we were going through that passage in Luke that the stones in that part of the desert were rounded rock that looked very much like loaves of bread in the sun. You can imagine how all that would have juxtaposed to, to create a savory-looking feast in front of him if he just compromised his intentions. And he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but that was, uh, that was an appeal to his hunger. All throughout his life, the devil appealed to him to get him to sin, to tempt him, to draw him off the track. And Jesus responded with faithfulness and loyalty. Jesus experienced anxiety. I don't know what you would call what he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane that night when he prayed. And the scripture says, the anxiety and the pressure and the sweat of his brow and of his body was such that the blood mingled with his sweat and ran down his body. When you're under so much pressure that your capillaries are rupturing and mixing with your sweat, that's pressure. Jesus was facing a crisis, a huge crisis. The physical ordeal of crucifixion in and of itself would make any man tremble. But Jesus knew that he was going to be separated from the Father during that period of hours when he became the sin-bearer. And in all of that, he said, Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And he bled and he died on a cross. And, of course, he was raised again. The humanity of Jesus is fully attested throughout all the Gospels. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but one who has been tested and tried in every situation, just like we have, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to his throne to find grace and mercy to help in our time of need, says the writer of Hebrews. Because he is available to us and he understands us. He is our constant companion. He is the firstborn from the dead in the resurrection. He is the assurance of eternal life. He is our example, our authority, our advocate, and our friend. He will never leave us or forsake us. He fully comprehends us. He is always ready to help us in our time of need. Quite a number of years ago with the Christian and Missionary Alliance Annual Council, I had the privilege of hearing Dr. S.M. Lockridge in person preach a great message. It's about an hour and 20 minutes long uh, called, He is My King. The ending of that message is a memorable ending that will be uh, never forgotten as I heard him wrap it up that night and we virtually rose to our feet in adoration and glory of Jesus Christ. He is my king. I want to end this morning's message by letting you hear the recording. Lockridge is in glory now, praising God around the throne. But he lives on in this great ending that has been recorded for posterity. And it's a fitting way 
to conclude this morning's message, Dr. Lockridge, he is my king.